Um, and I remember watching rocks the size of Land Rovers fall past us. And that's not an over-exaggeration, you know. And it's one thing to see, like, talk about that happening, but to see it, it's just like your eyes are like on stalks. You're like, oh my God. Um, and yeah, I, I really remember being this really scary, intimidating moment of like, holy shit, this could kill us really quickly. We have to get the hell out of here. Um, and we couldn't descend because the, the area where we were descending to was just being smashed to pieces. Those who are living a life of freedom have optimized themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want, when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of The Freedom Project. The conventional path never was for Willis Morris. Willis sought another kind of freedom. He moved from indoor climbing to alpinism and became world-class at that, and then from alpinism to speed riding. He wanted, in his words, the toughest way up and the gnarliest way down. What's more, he chose, in my opinion like a bit of a madman, to teach himself how to speed ride. This podcast is an exploration of how to learn any skill, what you learn from climbing the hardest pitches on the Eiger, how to climb hard alone without dying, and much much more. This episode for me with Willis was like being a kid in a candy store. There's something about his excitement for a true adventure and his self-supported individual and free way of doing it that really gets me stoked to get out in the hills. It's kind of a very British way to approaching adventure and doing difficult things. So enjoy this wonderful conversation with Willis Morris. Welcome to the show. Um, real privilege to be to be chatting to you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, let's start out with the obvious question: Why teach yourself to speed fly, and why not learn from a kind of wherever you learn from? <laughs> it's, uh, I guess, this is the question I get asked a lot. Um, mm-hmm. To be honest, there's no right answer. I guess partly. Learning to speed fly myself was uh, probably mostly down to being young and a bit naive and, you know, just a bit gung-ho. Um, I, I thought I could do it. I guess that's the real honest answer. Um, that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, but it's definitely the way I decided to go about it. Um, finances were low at the time. I had spent a lot of time in the mountains. It felt like something that I could approach with a cautious side. Um that's not always the right answer, but you know, I think um, for me, it was all about getting involved as soon as possible. I didn't want to paraglide. I didn't want to go and do thousands of skydives to be able to go base jumping, um, but I wanted to descend mountains because I was spending a lot of time in them. I wanted to get off the hill, um, and it seemed quite accessible. You know, There was no restrictions on it in the UK. Um, it's unregulated here, and for me, it just, it just, it was one of those things that I made that decision, and um, 
I kind of just went with it, which was a bit reckless, but hey, I'm still here and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, do you look back at that as reckless and go like, oh, that was a mistake? Or do you look back at it with a different... A hundred percent, I look back and think, yeah, that was stupid to do. <laughs> but um, I also look back and I know that what, you know, when you tell people and when I've spoken to people that are now super experienced and people that I've helped learn to fly, um, they... <sighs> Nobody ever really understands, I think, the headspace that I was in there and then. Um, and it is hard to try and you know justify what you did several years ago and how you were able to justify it. And then a couple of years later, you're telling everybody, don't do that. You know, Don't go down that path. Um, I just genuinely believe there's better ways to do it. Um, and I've experienced those better ways now. And I've helped people that have wanted to get into the sport take those pathways and do it you know you can still do it with the kind of same i guess attitude and mentality of i don't want to wait for everybody else i don't want to stick to every rule but you can do it with a a safer supporting community and i think that's the most important part to take from it um yeah yeah what were the the drawbacks of doing it by yourself i guess the 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 real problem is you you never know if you're doing it right and there's only so many youtube videos and you know comments you can read and f- uh, this sport is so new and back then it was even you know it was even more new um to be to be trying to do something like that which literally has the consequence if you mess up you die and knowing that you're going out for you know uh, a wee hour on the mountain and knowing that oh god if i screw this up it's really serious and i think in mountaineering and climbing you get a lot of warning towards that you know the weather can turn um, you might step into ground that feels like it's getting too hard or too dangerous. Whereas the speed flying, it's split second and it can go from all feeling very nice and friendly and like you're, you know, like you're doing something cool. And then all of a sudden you're on the ground with broken legs. And I, I've seen that happen too fast and a lot from people that think they're getting into something that they think they can handle. And uh, I think that's the biggest drawback from not being surrounded by people that can help you, whether that's via like an instructional school um, or by our mentor, or just learning through kind of peers that are, are growing in the sport with you. I think if you if you try and go out on your own, you really really lose that connection that people can step in and go. Have you thought about this? Have you tried this? And also, you miss the fun. You know, the best part about learning something new with people that are just as stoked to do it um, is that you have a great time together. So, what's the advantage of doing it then? <laughs> I guess uh, it's everything opposite of what I just said. <laughs> um, <laughs> what freedom? Like you don't have. You said something about rules earlier. Yeah, I guess you get to be a rebel and break the rules. Um, I guess the best bit about doing it on my own was that I I could do what I wanted at my pace, and for me that meant being on the hill, you know, seven days a week, regardless of whether it was raining or not. Whereas I think if I'd gone down a kind of more structured path, people would say today is not a flying day. And I, you know, maybe that's right. Maybe a 90% chance of rain isn't a flying day. But that also means there's a 10% chance it could turn into a flying day. Um, And that was the mentality I had where I I didn't want to answer to anybody else. I wanted to do my thing and I wanted to to go full immersion. You know, I wanted to be 100% obsessed with this sport because I knew if I did that, I wouldn't be talking two, three, five years to learn how to speed fly. I would be in three, six months time in the Alps flying off mountains like I wanted. Yeah, I saw somewhere that you racked up like four times the amount of hours that anyone else would. So I would say I was obsessed. I was out on the hill every day, no matter what it was, no matter where it was. Um, I booked trips to the Alps the moment I was capable of flying there. Um, Well, what I thought was capable of flying there. 
And uh, yeah, it, it quickly got ridiculous how many flights I was doing. You know, I was I was climbing one rows five times a day, um, if it was a good day, because that's what I needed. I needed to get to the top five times so I could do five flights. Whereas most people would go out, do a mum row, they'd have a great day doing it, they'd relax on the way up, they'd fly off, and they'd all like, you know, high five at the end. Whereas I'd be high fiving them and then running back towards the hill. <laughs> um, yeah, it quickly became a bit of an obsession. And then somebody one day mentioned, like, man, you're you're going to do a flight for every day of the year. And that quickly became the goal. I couldn't help it. Um, you know, I wanted to do 365 flights in 365 days. And it, it did work out. I think I did 365 in just under 340 days, something like that. So, um, yeah, it was it was busy. Yeah, sounds it. Without giving people an instruction manual to disaster, like what are the steps to to learning this themselves um i guess the best it, the best fast track easy way to do it nowadays is um 100 to go and do some form of flying first speed flying's too unforgiving to just step straight into it unless you've got an amazing community around it you know friends that have got wings that can literally take you out the hill and teach you the basics without you leaving the ground um, my suggestion is go and do a paragliding course because it will teach you lots about the weather it'll teach you lots about the kit um, and it'll give you all the things that I had to go back and relearn, even once I was speed flying. I think that's a really good way of doing it. And it gets you into, especially in the UK, it gets you into the scene with people that are probably thinking the same thing with you. And that gives you a group that you can start the journey with. Um, after that, it's buying the right kit. I bought the wrong kit without a shadow of a doubt. Looking back now, that was my biggest mistake. What did you buy and why was that? I negative? bought a, uh, what, what did I buy? I can't even remember what it was called now. Pretty much I bought a really outdated wing um, in a size 14 meter, which pretty much if you Google speed flying on the internet and read enough, everybody will tell you a 14 or 16 meter wing is a beginner wing. Um, what I didn't realize, if you buy a seven year out of date wing in a sport that changes so drastically year to year, you are buying a death trap. <laughs> um, it was difficult to fly it didn't have everything that modern wings have regarding technology and the way they work. Um, it was shoulder mounted, for instance, which nowadays just doesn't exist. Like a skydiving canopy, it had a cutaway system, which means if you set it up wrong, you literally fell out the sky. Um, all the things that speed flying as a sport has changed and brought safety measures and ways of doing things so that people you know, can do them safely and stay alive and, and do them faster and harder and cooler. Um, it didn't have any of them. <laughs> so yeah, buying the right kit's really important. Nice. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a good step. What what were your steps? Like what were the steps that you took? So I uh I think I had a beer or two with a friend in my flat and uh we were talking about this idea of me getting into speed flying. The perfect start to anything. Exactly, plan. you know, life changing decisions, do it over a beer with a mate. Um and it was kind of one of those ones where we joked about it and talked about like, you know, it'd be amazing. I think these, he was a climber and mountaineer as well. And, uh, having this idea of like, yeah, we should buy wings. We should go climbing and we should jump off mountains. That would be amazing. Although in that kind of like hangover, I got obsessed, went on the internet and bought a speed flying wing. Whereas I think the next day <laughs> you spoke to me and was like, wait, you, you've actually bought a wing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a couple of days later, this thing arrived in the post that I'd bought off someone on the internet um, after a bit of research. And I remember taking it out on the hill, a very small hill, you know, almost in a field rather than a, a mountain. And um, 
my dad was actually there. We took the dog for a walk of all things. It's the most, it's the most unextreme version of getting into an extreme sport. And, uh, yeah, I took this wing out of the bag and just tried to like kite it on the ground. Oh my God. I didn't, I get a re- reality check there. Um, go on. What did you learn? Just, you know, get dragged backwards across a film, a field in windy conditions. Um, absolutely no idea how to even put the kit on, let alone how to actually fly it. Um, it was one of those ones where you're like, oh, wow, I really don't know what I'm doing. I think with climbing and different disciplines within that, I've kind of stepped into it and had no issues picking it up. Um, I'm quite bodily aware. So when it comes down to like movement and things like that, I'm quite good at picking up that sort of stuff. Um, so sports have always been something I like just diving into the deep end and being like, right, let's see how hard it is. Whereas with this, it was so technical. There was so much knowledge that I was missing. I didn't have it in my repertoire. So when I picked this thing up, I was starting from scratch. You know, it was like, cool, give the ape a wing and let's see how he, you know, learns how to put it on. <laughs> and uh, that was me just literally rolling about a field for days trying to work out what was what. So the first step I'm guessing is learn how to control the, the kite and just see what's happening. Yeah, exactly. There. Learn how to fly the wing before you actually need to rely on the wing flying. Um, mm-hmm. it, yeah, if idea. you can, if you can get that wing really under control when you're on the ground, um, your likelihood of staying alive when you actually go up a hill to to jump off it is 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 dramatically increased. Um, I would say about ninety percent of accidents in speed flying happen on the ground or as you leave the ground or as you come back to the ground. You know, it's 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 ne- it's very rarely well, definitely <laughs> as you come back to the ground very quickly. It's very rarely um, this kind of big dramatic crash you know that, that does happen and it does happen at the extreme end people do crash speed wings but to be honest flying them a to b through open air is, is really quite easy um they fly themselves they're fairly stable um you don't have to do a lot you just have to not do anything stupid whereas when you're on the ground a lot of stuff can impact you um the way the weather and the wind interacts with the mountain that you are stood on will drastically change how that wing reacts depending on where you're stood on the hill so it's really difficult because obviously wind's invisible. Yeah, everybody knows you can feel it, but you can feel it where it's hitting you. If the wing is six foot above you and slightly off to the right, what's the wind doing there? Um, and being able to answer those questions in a safe place, knowing that if you do get dragged off your feet, if you do slip, if you do these practice launches and you've got you know a nice soft manicured grass, that's going to make such a difference compared to people that have massive accidents jumping off what they think is a beginner hill. But a small drop or a rocky outcrop that you hit um, it, it will hurt or it will kill you. Mm. Yeah, I had um, a guy called Bernd Maris Rorstad, who you might have okay. heard of um, on the podcast. He's a salmon athlete. Um, he, I th- In Norway, they give you this kind of like, I think you have a year where you go out and you basically go to some sort of sixth form college type thing where you can take up whatever you want for a year. And it's like, we will supplement your um, extreme sports kind of um, pension that you have. And like, you can go and learn like speed riding or you can go and learn like backcountry skiing, or you can go and learn like whatever you want. should have been born in Norway. Kind of, I know <laughs> that's what I think the whole time. And I'd be better looking too. Like, it'd be, it'd be amazing. Um, so they, they can do that. And he learned and did that for years. And then um, he had a big accident, uh, speed dropping, and he like he fell for like forty meters and smashed his ankles to pieces, and um, yeah, ended up having a foot amputated, and it was like it was 
interesting story amazing story how he comes back from it and like he's back in the mountains doing that thing but that kind of thing must be going through your mind in the terms of like a some form of visualization when you're you're setting off on your first flight yeah i think the coming to terms of the reality of what you're doing maybe takes a little while to 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 hit you i would say um everybody knows what it's like you are naive you're young you you, you're really passionate about your sport and nobody ever thinks they're the person that's going to die or hurt themselves um and if you do you're not the sort of person to be going out in the mountains let's be honest um it's it's one of these sports that you you really need to have that mentality where you can put the fear aside um because a lot of it's down to commitment when you launch you need to be really committed if you're not it, it comes back and bites you um that kind of lack of commitment it can just reduce the amount of loading on the wing. Um, you can just the way that you do things tends to be hesitant. And uh, is that like leaning forwards and skiing? Like you've got your weight forwards, like you're exactly committed. the same. Yeah, it, everybody knows if you don't, you know, when you're learning to ski and you try, you try to go downhill, but you're really resistant to going with the slope because it feels scary. Um, it's impossible. You know, you fall over lots. It's exactly the same as speed flying. The the more you commit to that launch, the more you lean into it and you you give it full whack. Um, it, it gives the wing the chance to fly and it, it gives the ability for the wing to be completely fully set on going forward. The moment you have hesitance um, and you start to kind of reduce how much you're giving to pushing off the hill, um, even if it's undeliberate, you know, even if it's, it's, it is crazy how you can see it in somebody's launch, even if they are a good pilot. The moment something's not right, the wind's slightly different from what they would like. Um, they're not feeling great that day. You can see how their launch is impacted. Um, and that's where so many things go wrong. People that do it wrong, the wing reacts differently. Um, and that can be the thing that catches you out. So yeah, really having that commitment and that confidence um, is definitely a big thing for making it all go well. What, what was your first flight like? Uh, terrifying. Absolutely useless and terrifying. I remember I'd kind of got the kiting dialed Although this wing was really difficult. As I said, it was shoulder mounted. So imagine trying to like, uh, I don't know if you've ever been on a skydiving canopy. It's the exact same idea. It's shoulder mounted. It's impossible to try and control from, you know, from there. You need to be loading it. You need to be hanging underneath it. So being on the ground is difficult. But I had that dialed. I went off on a fairly good, chilled, windy day um, so I could get the wing up and it could help me launch. I got in the air and then I just lost all control. Um, the kind of trim on this wing was out, so it, it completely glided off to the right. Um, I remember trying to get away from the hill, thinking like, right, take off, fly out, get away from the hill. Um, and I got in the air and it was just like, I was the victim of whatever the wing wanted to do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just ended up kind of crash landing a side on under the hill, kind of just bailing out of the flight. Um, I'd just trying to roll it off and tumble it off and kind of take it like a champ. But I remember it hurt. I remember it sucked. And that's probably one of the worst crashes I've ever had because from that moment, once I stood up from that and went, whoa, that could have been way worse. Um, I remember being like, right, I am going to take even more of a step back and I'm going to really try and dial this in. Obviously, it's really difficult because the, the hardest thing to learn is how to fly without flying. But... I was like, right, this wing is definitely not what I need. You know, saving a couple of hundred quid here or there isn't what I need. And um, that was actually when I reached out to a local pilot that I knew who knew I was trying to teach myself to fly. And he gave me some really good advice on on what wing to buy and where to get it. And within a week, I had that wing and it changed everything. Yeah, the that's what you mean about community and support. Exactly. Right? You know, if, if I didn't have Chris there to say, 
I really appreciate that you don't want to be told how to do this. Um, I'm not trying to tell you that you're stupid, but here's what you should buy. Here's where you can buy it from. Let me know if you do. And he couldn't have done that better for me at that time because if he'd said, look, man, you're flying a rubbish wing and this is never going to work for you, I would have just shut him down and not listened. And I know I would have. I'm not saying that would have been the right thing to do, but it was just the headspace I was in. Him telling me... How old were you at the time? I would have been about 21, I think. Oh, classic age for yeah. like pig Yeah, I was a dick. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just, I was so set on uh, what I wanted. And I, I don't think anybody could have told me I was wrong, you know? Um, as as we all know, that's what it's like when you're that age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like, a, like I didn't really, I think I did understand part of the appeal, but I didn't understand all of the appeal until I started watching your content. And it seems to me like it's a version of ski mountaineering where you get to kind of like ascend in a way that's fun probably and you get to descend in a way that's fun and new and novel so it seems like you got that kind of adventure and well speed being part of the name but like the kind of the creativity on the way down to yeah totally flying is uh, you couldn't have said it better with the kind of um, analogy with skiing it's exactly that where you're you're turning the worst part of the day, you know, coming down the hill into the one of the best parts of the day. Um, and those days where you, like I'm talking about in the past, where you, you're using it as a, a descent method, um, it might just be a very chilled flight and you get down. It still makes it really cool. You know, the day's not over. You've got another activity. You've got another thing to do. Um, on the flip side of that, there's loads of days where I go out and I just go flying. You know, I walk up a hill the easiest possible method. And I come down the fastest, hardest, coolest way down. And in the same way in skiing, you might literally have gone up the hill just to just to come down that one line. Um, and that kind of being able to fly with the terrain, being able to choose your line and choose which way you're going to do it, um, it really becomes obsessive. And that's the real elite end of the sport where you are proximity flying with the terrain, choosing a line you know, sat looking at satellite imagery and looking through maps and making sure that you're choosing the best possible, coolest, steepest, gnarliest line, and then flying it as hard as you can. Um, and there is something very similar with skiing that it, it really feels smooth and kind of interconnected with the ground when you're flying. You really are a hundred percent on that line, just just totally with it when you're going down. And um, I think that's the that's the nicest part of flying. Yeah, like when I've seen your like your GoPro footage, it's like this. It's the same lines you would take if you were skiing the train. It's like you're kind of you're carving almost, and you're kind of like that's what it feels like. You get that similar sensation. So it's, it seems sick. Like what adventures stand out for you when you think about your time? I guess the 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 days where you mix both a really cool day upwards. You know, you're not choosing the easiest line just to go flying. Um, you're going proper alpinism. You know, you're taking your ice tools, your crampons, your all your kit. You're you're going with everything you've got. But you know at the bottom of that pack, you've got a little machine that you just pull out <laughs> uh you whip up and then you're gonna fly down this really gnarly line. Um you know th- there's lots of adventures where y- you go out and you you it doesn't always work out as well. And sometimes they're the best days because you you really know that that line is there waiting for you. You know that that adventure of, I want to climb this line, and then I want to come back down that. Um, Days in the Alps are amazing. One of my first flights in the Alps um, of Agu de Midi, um, I climbed Coulo de Col de Plan. So it was a solo. It's not a particularly difficult route. 
um, conditions were really good. And I, I kind of hadn't really done a lot of big mountain soloing at that time. Um, but the conditions are brilliant. It was one of those things where, you know, the North face of the Midi takes hours to climb, as you know, with a partner. And it was like an hour and 45 minutes, two hours. I was kind of just topping out over the ridge. And then I remember looking up to the Midi Ridge and everybody knows that last bit where you've got to get back up to the lift and you look up and you're like, Oh God, this is the worst part. And you're a bit knackered always. I remember like, I'm not doing that today. I remember pulling the wing out and flying off and it wasn't a particularly gnarly flight. I didn't fly the train hard. But I remember landing back in Chamonix being like, that was the best thing I've ever done. Knowing that, you know, looking at your watch, I mean, like six minutes ago, I was at 4,000 meters. And uh, now I'm back down here and I'm going to the pub. Um, and it just, it just that mix of kind of um, skills for me where it really became a reality. What I, That dream I'd had of mixing my skills on the mountain with my skills in the air. Um, all of a sudden, yeah, that power alpinism became a, became a total reality to me. So I think that's one of the special moments for me, for sure. Yeah, that seems like a rite of passage. I think everybody that's done that remembers that moment in the same way that everybody that, um, I guess, gets into uh, any extreme sport. There's a moment when it's maybe not your, your most gnarly part of your journey, um, but it's that moment where everything clicks. And you start realizing that this this is a reality for you. This is now what you do. Um, and for me, it was it was personal. You know, I I'd been fighting so hard to have that moment, and it was it was just a great feeling to to land down in the field, knowing that um, what I'd done today was was exactly what I had seen people doing, and I'd really pushed myself to get there. And yeah, I guess I guess it's the accumulation of a dream coming true, isn't it? Which sounds a bit a bit silly, but it, it's it's awesome. And when you get those moments, you remember them forever. Yeah, there's also that feeling where you develop competence in something. I had this guy on, Gareth Timmons, who's a former Royal Marines Grando, and he wrote a book called Becoming 0.1%. And he was talking about, like, he previously played a very high level of rugby too. And he was talking about that feeling of, like, becoming competent at something. And it's like that kind of, like, shit, I'm getting this. And then you get, like, I don't know, you're, you're almost past the feeling of, I don't know what to do. I'm massively conscious of every tiny movement. And then you're like, okay i'm expressing myself a little bit more and i'm enjoying the process i'm not having to think about every minute movement too yeah totally like it it becomes this moment where exactly that you 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 reach a checkpoint where i think for me it's exactly where i wanted to be um and i think a lot of people look at that moment where they get to put it on instagram and tell everybody about it and be that hero um, whereas for me, it was, it was, it was completely personal. I'd been wanting that moment. I'd been wanting to reach that competence level for so long because it was a door opening. Um, yes, it feels good to tell people that you've done a cool thing. And yes, it felt great to, to the people that I'd shared the journey with to be like, Hey guys, look at what I did today and share that moment. Um, but yeah, there is definitely something, an amazing feeling about reaching that checkpoint where you're like, yeah. I'm doing this. This is what I do. I have made it. Um, it. It must be a very small number of people who can truly appreciate what you've done as well. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of people don't realize quite what the sport is. Um, you know, the classic, are oh, you paraglide? Well, it's similar, but different and it's faster and smaller and a completely different kind of way that you approach the sport. You know, paragliding, you want to go for long distances. Speed flying, you want to get as low and hard to the ground as you possibly can. Um, 
but yeah, not even necessarily just in the sport, but in the, I guess, in the mental space of having that moment where you really are risking everything and you are maybe doing what some people would see as reckless. However, you're completely confident you're going to be fine. You are, you're in a place doing something really dangerous um, in a really extreme environment, but you're totally at ease knowing that your skills, your knowledge, your confidence and everything you've done in the past um, builds up to you being able to stand there and know that you're going to be okay to do this thing. Have you got any processes that you go through to get in the right headspace for that? Like if you're standing at the equivalent of the top of a line and you're thinking, okay, maybe not a hundred percent feeling it or like you have steps to go, okay, get myself in the right place. Do you have anything like that? Yeah, I guess it, it's not something I can kind of like write down as these are my steps. Um, I definitely feel that I need to kind of take a moment before I fly something that is, you know, top end. Um, I often find myself, you know, I'll often march up a hill full speed, you know, you're dripping in sweat. You're, you're totally knackered from the ascent um, and you get there and normally I've got my headphones in because I'll normally like march with some tunes on. And I quite like, you know, I, I, I notice I, I always take my headphones off, usually put my harness on, lay the wing out. And before I clip into the wing, get everything ready and actually like commit to that, that moment of going forward off the hill. Um, I tend to like running the line. So uh, I will literally, to, you know, I might look a bit silly, but running back and forth on the hill, you know, taking the steps I'm going to take before I go off the cliff edge. So that not only is it really autonomous when I actually go to do it for reality, um, but it means that when I clip into that wing for that moment, in my head, I'm, I've already taken off. Um, I have already done this. So when I actually go for it, there's no doubt in my mind of commitment the way I try and get it is that in my head, I do the commitment before I even take that first step so that when I take that first step, I am a hundred percent going. And it, I think that doubles my chances in not making mistakes. And like I said, the commitment can really, uh, can really help you. Um, but it's also really good for my head. It gets me in the place I need to be before I do the activity. Mm. Yeah, that's, Sounds like a really good process, but you obviously, was it you learned to, or you're competing and climbing as a kid as well? Yeah. So I competed, you know, like a lot of kids that get into indoor rock climbing. Um, I competed on the kind of national teams and stuff, doing things, um, doing the YCS and things like that. Uh, and I think, I guess competitive sports are quite similar. You know, you have your one moment that comes up, you have that, I need to perform right now. Um, and being in that headspace before, you know, whether that's when you tie your knot in and you have a moment to yourself or whether you, it's analyzing the route so you're 100% sure you know what you're going to do. Or maybe it's just literally some people shut their eyes or, you know, kind of get out of their head, get out of that exact location you're in um, and try and, I always try and work out why I'm doing it. You know, why am I doing this, this stressful, dangerous moment? Um, why do I want this? And if you focus on the positives of that side of things, I find it comes back very quickly to, yeah, of course I want to do this. Um, if it starts getting to the point where you're like, this is dangerous, I'm scared, the conditions aren't perfect, maybe this could go wrong. Um, I think it's quite easy to start rolling down that spiral and you end up taking a step back from where you want to be and maybe not committing. Um, and sometimes that's the right thing to do. You know, When there's enough fear, when it, there's enough problems, if the conditions really aren't good, you'll walk away. Um, but if you give yourself that moment there and then to think, why do I do this? Do I do this to to be the guy on YouTube with loads of views? Or do I do this because I actually love it? Um, is this worth dying for? For me, 100%. You know, like if I 
was to have an accident doing something I love, at least I was doing something I love. Like if you're not willing to commit to the things you love, then then what can you commit to? But if you are doing it for other reasons, if you are going out in the mountains and trying to be that guy that you're not, um, if you're doing it for social media or for likes or for views, you'll very quickly find yourself stood on top of a hill going, I don't want to do this because it's not worth it. Um, and so for me, I've never had an issue with commitment on gnarly, scary lines because not from being reckless or stupid. It's I stand there and I go, I can do this and this is worth it and I'm going to pull it off. Um, yeah, I think that's my way of looking at it. Just a quick one from me. If you haven't already downloaded the Adventurepreneur's Ultimate Route Planning and Navigation Guide to Absolute Freedom and Doing More Cool Shit, what are you waiting for? In this totally free guide, I give you the frameworks that I've taught to hundreds of adventurepreneurs that set their life up for more freedom so they can get out and live a life full of adventure. It's going to teach you how to set your days and weeks up in order to maximize your time doing the things you love and how to perform at your best day in, day out and burst through your limitations. It's packed full of actionable steps and you can get it by going to bit.ly slash adventure.nav. Once again, that's bit.ly slash adventure dash nav. It's the difference between acting out a persona and doing something that you authentically love. That's like when I experienced this when I was in the forces, for example, I had to create a persona. And it was like, okay, this is the person I'm acting at being right then. And it's like, it's useful. It serves a purpose. And I was speaking to someone yesterday about it. And it's like a, it's a very useful thing to do because you, you have a skill set where you can do the thing mentally. You can like execute the task. But if it's not coming from that like authentic place of this is who I really am and I absolutely fucking love it, then that's a very different, um, the, the, the difference is subtle. You're still doing the same things, but it's like, you're committing to it. You're leaning forwards or you're, you're, you're engaging the wing. Totally. And I think for that, that very subtle difference for me is that it, can you justify it? In my head, I can justify my actions. Um, if I had an accident tomorrow on a wing, I could justify why it happened. Um, it might be an accident. It might be user error, but the justification for me is I'm doing something that I love. It's my sport. Um, it's not reckless. And obviously people that don't understand extreme sports will think it's reckless. Um, but for me, that justification is real and I feel it every time I go out flying. And and like you said, I fucking love it. <laughs> and when you're there and you're loving something and you're doing everything you want to do, who's to tell you you're wrong? Um, and when, you, when you're at that moment, not only will you be having a great time for yourself, but you'll also be doing something absolutely epic. And uh, this sport's really good for those moments. And I guess that's the buzz we all chase. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. This is trying to explain those moments to people that have no idea why you do it. I told my in-laws that I was planning a ski mountaineering trip to Pakistan and they're like their faces. <laughs> they're just like, why, like, why Pakistan? Why can't you just go to the French Alps and do like a, a nice thing there? And it's like, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And like, there's something inbuilt that's like, yeah, that's part of me. And I'm guessing you have the same thing for for mountains, for alpinism, for speed yeah, riding. I guess everybody has their drive, and I think I've got quite a strong drive of what I want to do. I don't like taking no for a, an answer, and like you said, when you want to do something, it's it's hard to explain to people that just don't understand it. 
Um, and it can take a long time to get people around to your way of thinking. You know, people that don't think like that, um, they like being comfortable. They like being within a safe environment. Um, it's really difficult to explain why you do something that's risky, dangerous, and, and quite hard work. Um, but I guess that's that's part of adrenaline sports and you know outdoor activities that that it is hard and it is scary and you do have to work your butt off to be good at it. Um, but that's what keeps me going. When did you first identify that connection of this is the type of person I am? Oh, I don't know. Um, I guess when I was you know a teenager, um, I you know did pretty well at school. I could have gone off and done kind of what I wanted to do. Um, and I guess when you're a teenager, you're forming the sort of person you're going to become. And I didn't want to be that person that went to university and lost my chances to go and explore. Um, and I think that's the sort of person I, I felt I, that's the sort of thing I had inside me was I wanted to explore. It wasn't just about climbing, which I was obsessed with back then. It wasn't just about being the best at something. It wasn't about like, um, kind of, I don't know. It wasn't about proving myself. It was about me getting that experience of exploring the world, going to cool places and doing cool things. Um, and I guess that's that moment where I, you know, I, I made those decisions to, you know, go off and work and go towards going out on adventures abroad rather than um, going down the line of focusing on a specific career. And okay, it may have started with, I'm going to take a year and then doubled and tripled until eventually it just became a lifelong ambition to keep doing and playing in the mountains. Um, but yeah, at that at that moment, I guess I knew. And yeah, there was some fun arguments with parents and friends, and you know where people disagree with the decisions you're making. But um, I guess if you know you're going to make it, and you're a hundred percent committed to whatever that goal is, whether it's exploring or traveling or whatever, um, it, you can make it happen. You just need to put the time in. Does growing up in Scotland give you like a? Um an engagement with adventure more so than how you'd guess growing up in England does? Uh, I guess it's hard to say, but there's something special about the Scottish mountains. Um, you know, I'm based in Glasgow. It's it's an hour and a half and you can be in the big hills. Um, don't get me wrong, it's not the Alps, but they're, they're wild um, and they're big and they're completely open. You know, you can, you can go and have an adventure at half past five on a Wednesday evening um <laughs> you can you can get up you can get your kit you can chuck it in the car drive north and um you can go and have a an adventure in the hills and so i guess i guess that accessibility to the mountains is is going to be a massive difference if you don't have that locally um i think it's a good scene up here as well i think people are motivated for that i think so many people are used to having that playground right behind them um that it it doesn't feel like hard work when someone asks you to go and do something um, for that might, you know, otherwise become logistically quite difficult if you're far away. Um, I'm always surprised when I see, you know, you, you meet people in the Scottish Winter Hills um, in the depths of winter on the Ben, and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, it's a long drive to the Ben because three hours. And then you meet someone on a route, and they're like, oh yeah, we drove up from, you know, Bristol, and you're like, God, okay, no, that's a long drive. And um, yeah, I guess I guess the accessibility is the massive thing. Um, and having people that are used to just saying yes because there's no reason not to. Was your um, first first ex- like um, or your first movement into alpinism was that the same kind of self taught approach where you're like, I'm just going to go and see what happens, or was it a 
more structured approach? Uh, definitely more structured. I guess the biggest thing was that I had the community. Um, so I, I learned alpinism and ice climbing and you know winter mountaineering with my friends, um, people that were experienced climbers um, at a high level of competence, um, maybe not so much in that discipline, but in other disciplines. So I found myself in a group of friends um, and climbers that were extremely talented, super strong, you know, so usually it, I think it, when I look back, I think of it as they were way better climbers than they probably should have been to start alpinism. Um, we were training hard, climbing super hard sport and track grades. So I guess the step into alpinism where you're not necessarily climbing harder, just things are bigger, longer, you know, you've got altitude to deal with. Um, they they felt like little hurdles rather than, oh gosh, this is all completely new. And I think uh, that was a, a really helping hand being personally a, a lot higher grade climber um, that I would say most people are when they step towards going mountaineering. Um, but yeah, having that community of people that were all super psyched, everybody had the same goal. Let's go alpine climbing. Let's go winter climbing. Yes, we were still kind of teaching ourselves as we went, but we were teaching each other as well. So I think that really helps. It seems like a really nice thing to have that buffer of climbing ability. So you're climbing, I don't know, six grades or whatever below your actual max must be a real kind of reassurance. I guess thing. it allows you to stay in control. Eh? If um, if you're learning something and it becomes down to you know physical ability, whether or not you can um, be completely outside your comfort zone or whether actually you're well within it and you can entirely focus on everything else that you need to be learning. So whether that's gear placement, whether that's the the way that you have to deal with the terrain, um, the navigation, if if your entire brainwave power is on that, um, it can be quite difficult to do it and learn it. Whereas yeah. if you can just totally relax about the climbing or the physical side of it, because actually it's really quite easy ground for you, um, I guess it makes it a lot easier to learn. So I think it's all about um, your, yeah, the, the way that you're able to deal with that situation. And um, just having a few grades in the bank definitely helps with that. How did that lead you, or you, you might have been the other way around, but how did that lead you to the Eiger? Uh, so the Eiger was a funny one. I uh, was on a, a rock climbing trip in the Alps um, with Robbie Phillips. Um, Robbie was a couple of years older than me, you know, quite a well-known name in the sport. I was not. <laughs> um, and uh, I'd known Robbie kind of through friends. I, you know, we bumped into each other now and then. We knew each other. Um, but I think Robbie asked me to go on this trip less for my climbing ability but for my kind of i guess climbing mentality you know um he was always a really keen advocate of going on trips with people that wanted to be there rather than the people that could be there um and i think that's something i've always taken from him forward I, you know i've been on lots of trips with people that you know in theory should not climb the grades they're on but they're there and they're doing it and they're way better partners when you're trying to complete a mission um, than someone that technically has 17 grades in the bank and is um, and able to do it all one-handed. You know, um, I think Robbie asked me to go on that trip because I was super psyched, super motivated, and I guess I just convinced him that I wouldn't let him down. And uh, yeah, we went on this amazing trip around the Alps. Um, we climbed some of the really hard, gnarly kind of big wall routes um, in Switzerland and other places and then uh the kind of end goal of the trip was to go and climb a route on the north face of the eiger called paciencia um it's a kind of sport route on the rotafleur 
um, one of the steepest parts on the wall. And uh, I guess we we maybe bit off a little more than we could chew at the start. The weather was bad. The rock was bad. The, everything was bad. <laughs> um, no, it was a total adventure. And we, we ended up spending, you know, several weeks going back and forth on this route, um, even coming back to the UK at one point because kind of funds and time ran out for the trip um, and then returning to complete it. And uh, yeah, it was, it's one of those things that really, for me, it was kind of um, a forming moment in adventure climbing for me. Um, less about sending every single pitch perfectly and more about me getting that, um, I guess, kind of experience on big mountains with a good friend and having an awesome time. Talk me through the experience, like what, what actually happened. Um, so we went and we started, you know, setting up ropes and, you know, this is the sort of route that you don't climb it on site in a day. Um, you kind of work every pitch. You've got crux pitches, 20 pitches up. Um, it is bolted in places, but it's extremely run out. It's extremely dangerous in uh, areas. The The way that you have to climb it is so different than you would on any other mountain in the world. Um, the rock is bad the the rope works difficult it's steep it's gnarly and the weather comes in like like the click of a finger um Mm -hmm. we had a lot of trouble with wet rock wet pitches and just just trying to link things together and every time we would be like right i think we're ready and we would go for a push something would happen something wasn't ready we wouldn't have enough food we wouldn't have enough time the weather would be bad um so it felt like we were really trying to do something that that it just didn't want to play game um we we were really just going against it it felt like it um there was other teams actually there trying to do the route at the same time that had been there longer had set up more ropes had you know technical teams working with them i think there was a film being made at one point um and you know that they, they turned around and they went home eventually because it just didn't work and me and robbie really put everything into this trip and we were so competent at that moment because we'd spent the entire last you know we spent the last couple of months of the summer working on routes like this um we were kind of a pretty slick team a slick machine for climbing hard routes in the alps um and back and forth back and forth we went and eventually we got a push where everything just clicked the weather wasn't as perfect as we would have liked but we were good enough and able to deal with it we knew the pitches well enough robbie managed to climb the crux pitch first time which kind of hadn't happened before um which was massive for us because it was like right we don't need to work this let's just go um and one after one, the pitches started getting ticked and we were like, we're going to do this. Um, and yeah, until we, we topped it. And then um, it was quite a reality check. It was, you know, there was a moment there where we were both like, we kind of broke down in tears. There was a super happy, this is done. Um, yeah, there was definitely a big fight to get that mountain sent. Yeah, that sounds incredible. What was the grade of the crux? Um, I think it's an 8A crux pitch on on um, Paciencia. Which uh, That's pretty I think handy. for Robbie is 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 not too hard. Um, you know, I I we'd spent the summer climbing up to eight B plus on other routes, but that AA is um, not like any AA on the planet. I would say, you know, super run out um, in the most exposed, scary position you'll ever find rock climbing. What are the moments that you remember from that trip? Um, I remember really well one of the the kind of the big descents that we made to kind of escape the hill when we got caught in a storm um that the, the clouds just rolled in literally in minutes and it sounds over dramatic but we were having the nicest day it was almost kind of warm and then 
I swear to God, in the time that you know we we'd clip two draws on the next pitch, it was like abysmal, um, and it was really scary. I, I remember it because of the fear. I remember me and Robbie both being stood on the ledge, looking at each other, being like, "What is about to happen?" Um, and it was really intimidating. You know, the, the Iger is the sort of place where when it rains, it's not just water; it just pushes everything down the hill. Um, and I remember watching rocks the size of Land Rovers fall past us. And that's not an over-exaggeration, you know. And it's one thing to see, like, talk about that happening, but to see it, it's just like your eyes are like on stalks. You're like, oh my God. Um, and yeah, I, I really remember being this really scary, intimidating moment of like, holy shit, this could kill us really quickly. We have to get the hell out of here. Um, and we couldn't descend because the the area where we were descending to was just being smashed to pieces. Um, and we just kind of hunkered down on this ledge to let the kind of brunt of the storm go by. And um, yeah, it was intense, but we we got through it, you know. It's so interesting. Whenever I get someone on the podcast who's done cool shit like this, I ask them what experiences they remember or what moments they remember of it. And it's never the topping <laughs> out. It's never the like, oh, I was just climbing so well and I just like, I just found this flow state. It's always like, oh, I, I almost died. <laughs> oh, there's this terrible time. And it's like, it's the classic type two fun definition. Like you look back at that and go like, yeah, that was something. Yeah. I think you, you always remember the struggle. Um, you know, that, that moment of glory where you top a route or you, you, you land your speed wing is, is, you know, an ultra high. It's 110% of everything all at one moment. Um, but it is just that one moment. It's that one split second. And although it's brilliant, it's it's hard to it's hard to try and remember how you felt at that exact moment. I think that is a moment that exactly type one fun. Um, that moment is for you there and then, and it's hard to try and share it again, um, even for yourself. Whereas those struggle moments, especially when they're shared with someone, that kind of battle. Oh, you get so much from them. It teaches you so much, and it's such an engaging moment. Yeah, and you life. can totally relive it. You know, I whenever I meet up with Robbie or I speak to him, or even sometimes when I I see him post something from our trip all these years later, you know, I, I have that moment where I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I do remember that. And I do remember what he said. Um, I guess those moments, you, you kind of relive it. And you because there was so much struggle, you can really feel exactly what you felt back then. And, and that makes it um, definitely live in your memory for a lot longer. There's this time that always comes to mind whenever I see my mates after like who live out in BC. I, there's this time massive cornice fell off, like huge, like a pretty sizable avalanche. We realized we we're on like not a great slope at that moment in a um, like crevasses all around us. And it's like, oh shit, we're roped up. What do we do in this scenario? And um, we're like, we need to get off like now. And um, and my bindings completely froze up. And the only way, like there's, we're on avalanche train. The only way I can get myself out of the situation is by pissing on my bindings. <laughs> and like that moment always comes up. It's like such a ridiculous moment of just like hilarity. I think, I think brilliant moments like that where something that would never happen normally, you know, especially when it's funny yeah. like that. Yeah. It's the sort of thing you'll never forget. Um, I bet you your friends never let you forget it either. <laughs> just desperately trying to work up a stream. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. How do you get yourself into rope solo? Um, I guess because why not? Literally, why not? Um, I tried lots of climbing disciplines. I wanted to do different things. Um, and it's cool. You know, you get to go climbing on your own and you don't have to rely on a partner. And it's just it's a completely different way of climbing the same bit of rock that you've maybe done before 
in and it's really technical you know it's it's less about the physical side of it i would say but more about the kind of um again it's it's adventures you're on your own you're battling the mountain and all you've got is you yourself and i so it, i should probably or you should probably explain rope soloing for people who don't know uh, so rope soloing isn't where you are free soloing which is climbing without ropes where if you fall you die um, rope soloing is where you are effectively doing the actions of a team of climbers. So where you normally would go and somebody would lead and somebody would belay. Um, you do all of that for yourself at the same time, all at once. Um, so you start at the bottom of the pitch with the rope attached to the anchor rather than to your partner. However, you have the device, which is similar to a regular belay device, um, on the lead rope and you feed yourself slack as you move away from the belay. So effectively, it's like leading in reverse. Um, it does mean that when you get to the top of a pitch, you then have to descend the entire pitch, undo all the ropes, and then reascend the pitch, usually via jumaring, um, because you've already actually climbed the pitch, just to take all the gear out. So effectively, you move over the same terrain three times just to climb one pitch, and then you keep going. <laughs> okay, this is my well, my first chance to speak to someone properly who does it significantly. So. Build an anchor like standard kind of process, I'm guessing. Just build your standard anchor. Uh, and then... So, yeah, it is a standard anchor, but it needs to be multidirectional because when you fall up the way, or when you fall down yeah. the way, the anchor gets pulled up the way. So uh, it is a standard mm-hmm. anchor, but yeah, it's uh, like a bomb-proof version of it that can be multidirectional. Okay, nice. And then you just tie in as you would any other knot, just kind of just stick a knot on there. So, uh, there. yeah, I just use a double figure of eight and double stop and attached to the anchor. Um, unless you're doing something really gnarly where uh, you need um, effectively the, the rope to kind of have a dynamic fall where you can attach it to a whole bag or a whole bag or something and then to the anchor. So effectively uh-huh. it lifts that bag almost like a ballast before you get caught. Um, okay. So it's a soft exactly. Fall. You effectively are creating a belay partner to give you a dynamic catch um, to take that initial impact off the anchor. Uh, but yeah, you tie the rope to the anchor, and then and then you go up, place gear as you as you would normally. Um, what what belay device? Uh, so I just use a grigri. Um, this is uh, it, rope soloing. The rope soloing community is actually larger than you think. It's kind of like this underground community of weird technical device and devices and people trying crazy shit. Um, and it's a really funny way to look at it. But there's there's really cool things that happen which no one will ever hear about because it's in that scene um but yeah lots of people use devices that are purpose-built for it there are devices that are really good for it things like um the what's it called the solo i think it's called um but i started with a grigi i I kind of adapted it so i file off a bit of it don't tell petzl um (laughs) but you can adapt (laughs) devices so that they don't do what they're meant to so you can adjust the spring catch on a grigri so that it doesn't just lock and catch all the time um you can file off the kind of friction plate so that the rope runs much smoother um effectively you create a device that does what you want um and i've got so used to it that it's just the device i use um who knows maybe i'll change one day maybe i'll upgrade um but yeah i just use a, a an edited um personal grigri okay and i'm guessing what you're looking for is it like at the as you pull up, it feeds more slack a little bit, or are you actually using the mechanism? On the uh, so it depends what grade you're climbing and what kind of terrain you're climbing. You know, on a slab, you can do it all hands-free if you're if you're stood correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, soup 
super steep overhanging stuff. Um, it's definitely easier if you haven't got a device that, that gra- locks too much. Um, but yeah, you are f- you are actively feeding that device um, and making sure that it runs. And it's a funny way to climb because you often do the rope work before you do the move. Then you commit to the move, and then you just keep going. Um, but yeah, that device is often a kind of self-assisted belay device, so it helps lock the rope when you fall because you'll be falling and not concentrating on catching the fall. Um, yeah. And then you would use backup knots or devices behind that on the rope. So effectively on the dead rope of the device, um, I use a rolling clove hitch and you use that so that mm. if you were to have a malfunction with the device or um, it's not unheard of in kind of rope solo falls for really big impact forces to go on devices like this. So Grigory's fail, you know, uh, front plates come off of them, um, carabiners snap. So having that backup device or not, um, not only helps you feed the rope and kind of have a cache so that the, the the weight of the rope isn't feeding the device in the wrong direction. It also allows you to kind of have that extra safety and extra backup. Nice. Sorry, nice. it's really hard it's, not to go technical. Some... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm interested in the technical. And it's like, uh, as all my audience know, this podcast is exclusively for me <laughs> and they just happen to hear it at the same time because um, I find this shit interesting. Is that something you taught yourself? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I learned at Dumbarton Rock of all places, a single pitch crag, which is mainly known for its bouldering and absolutely nails hard trad. Um, but these kind of really good splitter cracks that take pretty good gear um, was a great place for doing it. Um, although it was usually really busy. So I just started doing it at night um, because, well, when you're kind of rope soiling, it's less important to have a partner who needs to be there at three in the morning so um yeah it just worked out so i would literally go and rope solo in the middle of the night with a head torch on in dunbar and of all places which is the amount of people (laughs) i've spoken to on this podcast who have like gone i've gone and done some weird shit in the night because no one else is around (laughs) it's like like yeah i'm gonna pull some sleds up a muddy field like and i'm just gonna do it at night because no one comes and asks looking back i'm like why did i do that but yeah at the moment i thought it was a great idea yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Like, so the big thing I'm interested in is you've taught yourself some very technical skills. What have you learned about teaching yourself and learning skills through that? Um, oh, good question. I think the the most important thing is doing it, making sure you're within your comfort zone. Um, it's I think it's really easy to have an idea of like, right, I'm going to go and do this, and you you can you can literally like rationalize it, even if it's absolutely bonkers. Um, I think everybody can get themselves in a headspace at some point where you rationalize that, yeah, I am going to go and do that crazy thing in the middle of the night and rope solo and Dunbar and rock. <laughs> um, but I think the most important thing is to stay within that comfort zone and know where it is. Really know yourself so that when things aren't as they should be rather than just keep pushing being like no i am going to teach myself this it's meant to be hard um knowing when to kind of go actually wait a second i need to pull this back um because if you don't stay alive it's really hard to keep learning (laughs) um or if you mess yourself up you know if you have an accident even if it's not physical even if you have a scary moment that can impact you and your learning progress so dramatically um that it's you know it's it's not it's totally negative to the process um you have to really try and keep within that that sensible space where you're pushing yourself enough but you're still learning and you're still comfortable enough to take it all in 
you heard of the zone of proximal yeah terror. exactly that yeah exactly that like a bit outside the unknown oh sorry a bit into the unknown where you are engaging in something you don't know how to do fully but not so far that you are putting yourself at risk how have you learned to stay in the zone of proximal development like what what are the markers that you're looking for of i'm straying outside of that either side i think um it sounds silly but when i'm on my own teaching myself something if i'm in an extreme environment even now i talk to myself loads which might be the first sign of going crazy um but i think when you're in a partnership with someone when you you climb with someone or you do adventurous sports with other people um the moment you have issues you, you communicate them because that's how the world works um that's how you learn and that's how as a team you make good decisions um and i think it's really easy as an individual to just stay within your head just it's just you and your thoughts telling yourself it's all going to be okay actually this is meant to be difficult keep pushing keep pushing don't back down you know don't be a wuss um and i think actually physically hearing it might be your own voice but physically having that come from a different direction you know physically hearing it not just it being your own thoughts um sometimes you say it and you're like what am i on about why am i doing this no this is dangerous turn around stop um or Yes, that was a really good moment. Yeah, that was perfect. Do that again. Um, and I think I, it sounds crazy, but literally talking to myself is one of the uh, one of the things I do to kind of give myself a reality check to make sure that I am comfortable. Um, you know, if if I'm doing something gnarly on a on a climb and I, I'm on my own and I'm talking to myself and I'm happy and it, the the kind of the not conversations flowing because that would be about outrageous, but you know what I mean? That it, it's not negative. It's not like, Oh, I'm scared. This is dangerous. What am I doing? If everything that's, you know, if I'm singing and I'm happy and I'm having a good laugh with myself, um, I know things are probably going in the right direction. If it starts becoming that kind of dark and gloomy, Oh, that was a bit gnarly. And you say that out loud and you say, and you hear it and you go, why was that? not? Oh yeah. Because the snow is not the conditions I think it is. Um, I think it gives you that reality check to just take a step back from being on your own, look at the situation from a third point of view or a third person point of mm. view and try and assess it without just being in your head the whole time. Yeah, it forces you to make your thoughts conscious as well. So you have like, it's almost like a form of verbal journaling where it's like, what am I thinking? Get it out onto paper. It's almost like, what am I thinking? Get it out into the world because then I'm forced to say what I'm actually thinking. Yeah, exactly that. Um, you know, saying it makes it real, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. What a great place to wrap up. Um, thank you so much for, for joining me. Where can people follow your work? And also, like, your flyby video fucked me up. <laughs> I think it's got, like, a million views now because, like, I watched that and I was like, man, that, like, yeah, that got me. Um, so that's awesome to see. Um, where can people go and find that and other content? I guess I'm pretty out? active on, you know, the likes of Instagram and Facebook, etc. cetera. Um, Instagram is obviously super powerful with kind of stories. So I quite like keeping an up-to-date story, whether it's climbing or training or flying. So um, yeah, you can check me out on there. I think I'm Willis Morris 25 on Instagram. Um, but yeah, uh, keep an eye out on kind of the Yotna website. Um, they have a kind of blog that runs from all the pro athletes that um, write about their adventures or their experiences, or even just give you a good story from times that they've had. So that's quite a cool place to go and check out for um, for adventurous stories for myself as well. Awesome. Awesome. And what uh, what trips you got coming up? This um, year? So the winter's predominantly focused on competitive ice climbing. Um, I'm competing in the World Cup this year, so... 
Um, I'll be out in South Korea, Canada, Switzerland, um, competing with nice. the team. And then uh, once the comp season kind of wraps up, it'll be predominantly focused on Scottish winter climbing and trying to, um, yeah, climb gnarly shit in gnarly weather. Perfect, man. Thank you Thanks so much, for having me, dude. Join us on a powerful journey with Once We Were Warriors, a documentary that transcends boundaries and speaks to the souls of our veterans. We need your support to turn this vision into reality. Once We Were Warriors reveals the path to recovery for injured Royal Marines commandos in the French Alps. Produced by former servicemen, it offers the most authentic storytelling. This documentary dives deep into the lives of those who have served, challenging stereotypes and advocating for veterans' care as we approach a decade since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. But to make this vision a reality, we need your support and your funding. Support us on a crowdfunding campaign at www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com to help us make this documentary a reality and give a voice to those who have sacrificed so much. Join us in making a difference. Together, we can rewrite the narrative for our veterans. Once more, that link is www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com.